Hi, this is Hanson from Archippus Awakening, a ministry that's dedicated to the awakening of saints that we may know and fulfill our God-given kingdom assignments. And this is where Kingdom 101 comes in. We revisit kingdom fundamentals so that we can know our king all over again, embrace the things of his kingdom, that we can move correctly on our kingdom assignments. Now, in this teaching, I'm going to be talking about a countermeasure. Now, first, let me explain what the countermeasure seeks to counter. Well, not everyone may be good with numbers, but everyone is quite good at counting. No, I'm not talking about mathematics. I'm referring to a counter mentality. Now, I have it, and most likely you have it too. Especially when I'm wronged or hurt or sinned against, this ability is significantly heightened my counter mentality kicks in and I begin to count. And I can count quite well. I begin to keep track. How many times did you hurt me? How many times did you let me down? How many times? How much? How long? See, the more I count, the better I get. And I'm really quite good at it. I assure you, I'm possibly one of the very, very best. But therein lies the problem, you see. This strength that I have is really a weakness. And the enemy is very willing to exploit this weakness, to take advantage of it to the very fullest. He turns this counter-mentality that I have into a weapon that destroys me as well as the kingdom community. This counter-mentality, if not promptly addressed, doesn't stop at counting or just keeping track. It quickly develops into an unhealthy defense of personal rights, a demand for justice, an exacting of payment. And until these are fully satisfied, by my own terms of course, I hold on. I refuse to let go. I refuse to release. And before I know it, I have unforgiveness in my heart. I don't like this counter-mentality. And that's why I need a countermeasure. And here's the big idea for this teaching today. To defy a counter-mentality, I have to apply a countermeasure. Well, thankfully, God has a countermeasure to counter this counter-mentality. It's called forgiveness. And this is what we will explore as we close Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is the fourth kingdom discourse in the Gospel of Matthew. And if you have been journeying with us, you will now know that it is about relationships in the kingdom community. Our passage is taken from Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35, the last segment of this entire chapter. I see that there are really largely three parts um, to this whole passage. Number one, what we should do. Number two, we'll address what we should not do. And number three, why we really should not do what we should not do. Well, simple enough, let's jump right in. Let's begin with the first two verses. Let's read from Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 22. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Well, look at the very first word, then. It just shows you that this is a continuation of all that we've been learning in this Matthew chapter 18. Well, Peter has been listening, right? He's been listening to Jesus' teaching and he wants to apply. So he asks a very, very good question. 
If my brother keeps sinning against me, right, that phrase should be familiar to us. How often, right, do I allow him to do this and I keep forgiving him? Now, Peter knew he had to forgive. The question is, how many times? And you notice, you know, Peter was willing to forgive, but in counting the number of times to forgive, Peter was still counting the number of times that he has been sinned against. Now, can you spot the counter mentality here? But you've got to give credit to Peter. He said, seven times? Well, sounds very, very generous. But what was Peter's reference? See, he didn't just pluck this number out of nowhere. I mean, it sounds like a perfect number, number seven. But if we look at rabbinic maxims and teachings, they allowed forgiveness up to three times. And possibly, this could be a wrong interpretation of Amos chapter 1, verse 3, or chapter 2, verse 1. For three transgressions of Damascus or Moab, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. So just three times you forgive, but when it comes to the fourth time, that's where the punishment or the judgment comes. Now, notice how this seems also to relate to the three levels in our previous passage. Level 1, 2, 3, and then level 4, you cut the person off. In other words, three strikes and you're out. After that, I'm allowed to restart my counting again. Can you see the counter mentality? Now, what did Jesus say then? He said to Peter, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Well, in another translation, uh, it's been noted that it's better translated 77 times. And this is possibly an allusion to Genesis chapter 4, verses 24, where Lamech announced, If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Now, Lamech was um, very presumptuous, wasn't it? That if Cain can get away and God uh, sort of extended grace to him sevenfold, that I can be allowed seventy-sevenfold. Uh, and it might have been a presumption upon God's grace. But could Jesus, in referring to this, be saying, well, it's okay, let them, let, let them just expect that grace from you. Let them presume upon that grace. You are kingdom people. You are to be gracious people. Just, just let, them, let them presume upon that. So 77 times. Now, was Jesus also saying it's okay to count, just that he upped the limit a little bit more? Now, this is where we see the contrast, right? Peter's counter mentality and Jesus' kingdom countermeasure. He wasn't saying, just keep counting and you can reach up to that number, whether it's 77 or is it 70 times 7, which is even larger, 490 times. That wasn't Jesus' intent at all. What he meant to say was this, just forgive and keep forgiving. In other words, don't keep track, don't count. And if you have to count, lose count. <laughs> just forget how many times you have to do it. And that's what you should be doing. See, to defy a counter-mentality, we have to apply a countermeasure. Stop that counting. Even when you're asking, how many times should I forgive? You are still counting. You have to apply a countermeasure of forgiveness. And it sounds really crazy. Imagine Peter's reaction. I mean, he thought he was being gracious. And when the Lord explained this to him, his eyes might have just, huh, are you sure? And I believe this is what prompted Jesus then to tell a parable in the next verses. 
Matthew 18 verses 23 to 34 would form the second part. And here Jesus uses a parable to provide a negative illustration, a counterpoint, if you would. He's really saying, well, Peter, you know what you should do. Let me now tell you what you should not do. And since you like counting so much, here's an accounting parable. Well, we know a parable is a very simple story that would illustrate, that would bring out the truth more easily. It employs very, very common characters. And in this case, the Lord uses a king with servants and servants sometimes would come into debt and owing the king some money. And so these are all very, very easily identifiable and relatable. But as with many parables, the rabbinic thought would be to bring exaggeration, hyperbole, so that the point that the master or the teacher wants to bring would become even more obvious to the students. Now, in the interest of time, we will not be reading the entire passage, but allow me to give you a summary of this story of this parable. Well, there was a king and he had servants, and the time came to give account, or he wanted to call account uh, of these servants. And this one servant owes the king 10,000 talents. Now, that's a lot. Now, Jesus was not just looking at this one number, but he used these two terms, 10,000, as well as talents, to signify that the debt was very, very great. 10,000 would be the largest number you have in Greek, and the word talents would have been the highest known denomination. Now, in our day today, we might say um, he owed the king a Googleplex dollars or a centillion. Don't ask me how many zeros. All I know is one followed by many, 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 many zeros. In other words, a lot, a lot, a lot. And see the exaggeration? The Lord was really blowing this number so big just to show that the servant is not able to pay this debt. The servant goes to the king, he begs, he offers to pay. But we all know it's not possible. He has no ability to be able to pay this debt. In fact, it was common in those days for slaves and their families to be sold off so that the debts can be settled. And even then, it cannot cover the amount that he owed. And so he was begging the king because he knew the plight that he was in. Now, the king has compassion. I mean, after all, he knows the servant's inability to pay. And so the king cancels the debt. In other words, he forgave him. He released him from this debt. And so the servant is set free and he is released. Now that's one part of the story. The servant goes out and he counts and he exacts payment from his fellow servant. The fellow servant now owes him money. But it's 100 denarii. Now that's 100 days wages. Now it might be still quite a lot. But when contrasted against 10,000 talents, it's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, 10,000 talents versus very not a lot. And the Lord was using these two extreme examples again to highlight a point. It's nothing, nothing compared to what this first servant owed the king. Well, as in the first case, the fellow servant begs this other servant and offers to pay. But the servant's response is counter to the king's response. 
the scripture tells us he refuses, he refuses, he outright refuses to entertain any request. Instead, he throws this servant into prison. Now, the story doesn't end there. The other servants hear about this and they must have known about the story and how the servant was released. So they report this to the king. The king summons this first servant and then tells him his expectation. I mean, I forgave you. I would have expected you to do the same. And suddenly the king's countenance changes from compassion to anger. And the result is that the servant's debt was entirely reinstated and he was thrown into prison to be tortured and to be tormented. And the Lord's point was simply this. This is what you shouldn't do. Don't keep having this counter mentality to keep counting because to you it's a lot, but compared to what you have received, that pardon you have received, it really is nothing. So don't keep accounts. Don't exact payment. Instead, you are to forgive. Stop this counting thing. Stop demanding repayment. Instead, you are to release. You are to cancel. If not, you will find your own debts reinstated. Now, so this is what you shouldn't do. Stop having this counter mentality. Apply the countermeasure. Now, look at this parable. It's so simple, but so stark. Very clearly, the king represents God or Jesus, our king. And the servants refer to his kingdom people, and that's us. But what do the reinstatement of debts and torture mean? And that's where we will find out in the next part. Part 3 is just one verse, Matthew 18, verse 35. But I think it's the most important portion because Jesus explains, he clarifies, and he emphasizes this as the main point. So let's read the verse together in Matthew 18, verse 35. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. One simple verse, but it is loaded. Let's unpack this. Let's look at the first word first. One small little word, so, but it's a very, very important word. This word, so, in the text means in this manner. In the same way, similarly. But similar to what? And this is where we need to go back to the verse before in Matthew chapter 18, verse 34, which speaks of the king reinstating the debt. Forgiveness has been withdrawn. The servant was thrown into prison to be tortured and tormented. Jesus says, my father will do the same to you if you act in that same way. Wow, this is difficult for us to even accept, right? It's hard to understand first, much less accept. Is this even possible? Are you sure this is the correct thing that you're reading? But I'm reading from Scripture. And I know you're asking this question. Surely this is Old Covenant, right? This cannot be applicable. We are New Testament people. Oh, I know. It's pre-cross. This was before Jesus went to the cross. After that, all our sins are forgiven already. Surely this is not applicable. Now, I know you and I would prefer this position. But if this were not applicable, then we have to cancel a few other verses. Or in particular, those in the Lord's Prayer or the disciples' prayers, I prefer to call it. Matthew chapter 6, verse 12 says, 
and forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. Right? So if this is not applicable, let's cancel as we forgive our debtors because we don't have to practice this. Lord, just forgive us and that would be cool. And yet, do you notice that this one verse, Matthew 6, 12, this one part about forgiveness in the Lord's or disciples' prayer was the one part that Jesus chose to highlight and emphasize again immediately after teaching disciples how to pray. And this we find in Matthew 6, 14 and 15. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Was Jesus, the King of the Kingdom, mistaken? I think not. More likely, it's our own discomfort in accepting this truth and teaching that has caused us to interpret in less offensive ways. See, Jesus had no problem with God being both gracious as well as angry. And surely as the king of the kingdom, he understands the ways and the principles of the kingdom. And that's why he teaches us as kingdom people, pay attention, listen to this. If you know what you should do and you know what you shouldn't do, this is really why you shouldn't and mustn't do what you should not do. But let's go on. What would be these torturous and what would be this torment, right? I mean, is that even applicable for us who are supposed to have um, promises and prosperity and freedom in Jesus Christ? Well, we know that this torturing and this torment can apply to this life. Do you know that it's already been documented? that there are lots of psychosomatic issues as well as sickness or diseases linked to unforgiveness. When we hold things within us, when we count it over and over again, we worry, we get upset, we are anxious, it adds to our stress, it contributes to heart issues. Um, at sometimes it may result in stroke, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, so many other things. And we are tormented both emotionally and even physically. And that's only talking about this life. I mean, I don't want that. And I'm sure you don't want that for yourself either. But was Jesus only referring to this life? How about after this life? Now, something that this may refer to purgatory, right? Where after we are saved and after we pass on, because we are saved, uh, we will be purged. So we'll be tormented for a little while and after that it's going to be okay, we're going to be in heaven anyway. I know that sounds good because it helps to preserve the notion of salvation. But think about this, if debt is reinstated, now that means our sin is still upon us. Now is salvation still there? Do we still have righteousness in Christ? Is salvation at stake then? Now, I know this is not what we want to hear, but you have to admit, if we go through all of Scripture and look at all the teachings of Jesus, not just in Matthew, but in all of Scripture, this is really more in keeping with the Lord's picture of eternal torment in hell. And this is why we don't want to do what we should not be doing. This is why this is the main point of the entire passage the Lord emphasizes it, explains and states it as clearly as possible in case you missed the point. We have to defy this counter-mentality. 
and to defy counter-mentality, we have to apply this countermeasure. The Lord has given us the solution and He wants us to apply it well and to do it for our sake as well as for the body of Christ. Now that we've considered the entire passage, I hope you can see how important forgiveness is for us, for the entire body of Christ, the kingdom community. Can you see how dangerous the counter-mentality is? But God has given us a better way. He's given us a solution. He's provided a countermeasure to this counter-mentality. I know you're happy with that and you might just say amen too, but you're still struggling with it, right? Right within your heart. Oh, the seeming injustice, isn't it, right? Why should I keep forgiving when the other person seems to get away scot-free? Or if he or she just keeps doing or saying what he or she has already been doing. I know, we want judgment, we want repayment, we want compensation. We want the other party to pay, to hurt, to suffer as he or she has caused us to experience pain. Are we just to keep forgiving and forgiving and forgiving no matter what? This sounds so unfair. I get it. I understand what you're trying to say. But here's the key, you see. God's countermeasure to counter the counter-mentality is counterintuitive. It goes against our every fiber. Can you see? The kingdom is, after all, upside down. I get what you're feeling and what you're saying. But let's read the passage in its entire context in Matthew chapter 18. And I hope that this will help us see more clearly and hopefully be able to accept more readily. Now here's an overview of Matthew 18 in case you have forgotten. Jesus addresses relationships in the kingdom community. The disciples were asking, who's the greatest? And Jesus said, look, it's not about that. It's about humility. Now if you would hold this trait within your heart, it will help you navigate the entire passage and in your relationships with one another. The king is very, very serious about righteousness and sin in the community. And he's ready to deal with those who stumble others, who cause others to sin. But at the same time, he seeks to restore everyone. He doesn't want anyone to perish. And so he extends enough chances to repent and to return. Now, to do this, he prescribes the process of discipline within the Ecclesia, levels 1, 2, 3, as well as 4. He also affirms the authority that we have. He will be with us and he will support us when we seek to carry out this process. And without doubt, for sure, the rebellious and the unrepentant will be dealt with. But overall, we understand the king is gracious He's patient. He's compassionate. But he does get angry, and he will get angry. And he will judge righteously, especially those who will not follow and obey his word. So take a step back. Look at the context. You see, when we understand our passage today in its entire context of Matthew 18, we see that Jesus addresses both the one who has sinned and the one who has been sinned against. Now, both have been given very, very clear instructions to follow, as well as the consequences of not following these instructions. Both 
also have responsibility as kingdom people, if we say we are people who have been saved, that we will live as instructed. Now, to the one who has sinned, if he repents, praise the Lord, he is forgiven by God. If he is unrepentant, then he's bound in his sins. He's not forgiven by God. And there's every possibility of destruction. But to the one that has been sinned against, now if he or she forgives, now we read that he will be forgiven by God. But if he does not forgive, then he's not forgiven by God. And there's again every possibility of reinstatement of death, of torment, of torture, and of destruction. Now let me give you an example. Let's say there's infidelity in the marital relationship. A husband who womanizes. Now, if we apply today's teaching, then based on Matthew 18, 21 to 35, the wife forgives and forgives and keeps forgiving. Now, if the husband is unrepentant, then we have to apply Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20, which is the passage before. He is held accountable across all levels of discipline. And if he repents, there is restoration and there is rejoicing. But if he is unrepentant, then he is treated as an unbeliever and possibly he might face destruction. Now, I know it's not as straightforward as what I've described here. There are many, many other things and other layers that we have to consider. But can I say, Jesus has been very, very clear to address both parties. And we must do the same. Our problem is that we almost never consider these passages together. We only focus on one. You have to forgive. You must forgive. Huh? No matter what, huh? you must forgive. Now, it's not wrong, but it's not complete. We neglect the other part. And that's why for the one who seeks to forgive, he or she tries his level best. But that seeming injustice, why is it only me? How about the other person? Can I assure you, my brother and my sister, the Lord has already addressed everything in Matthew chapter 18. But you ask still that question, but where's the judgment? Where's the payment? <laughs> you see, it's so hard to get rid of this counter mentality. And I get it. Can I say to you, there was judgment. Jesus bore that judgment on all our behalf. See, neither the sinner nor the one sinned against can repay anything. On the cross at Calvary, Jesus paid it all for all. And I want you to catch this truth. What Jesus paid for you, he also paid for the one who sinned against you. You may not like to hear this, but that's the truth. And if you want to question this judgment, to question this is to question the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. To belittle this payment is to mock the value of Christ's life, his love, and his grace for us. You want judgment? Judgment has been paid for. It's done by Jesus. And so when we appropriate it, whether we are the ones who have been sinned against or we are the ones sinning, Christ has paid for it all. As kingdom people, we need to live forward from the cross. 
I know God's countermeasure to this counter-mentality is counter-intuitive. But to forgive is the right kingdom thing to do. Defy counter-mentality. Apply countermeasure. After hearing all this, I know you agree with the words of Jesus and you want to obey. But I know it's also not easy. So allow me to share a few points that I hope will be helpful. Let's look at what forgiveness is and what forgiveness is not. Number one, forgiveness is a kingdom expectation based on the king's example. See, whenever we speak about forgiveness or when we are considering this point, we have to remember who forgave first. I know it's very, very tempting to read this parable or the Lord's Prayer or anything about forgiveness and presume that if we don't forgive first, then God won't forgive us. Now, this is wrong. We must remember, God has already forgiven. He forgave first. When we believed, when we came to Him and when we repented, He forgave our sins. God always takes the initiative. We are not the ones who is doing the forgiving first. God has already done it. Jesus has already done it. And the king expects us to follow his example. See, that's what followers of Christ, disciples, are expected to do, right? We follow the Christ. We follow the king. The Lord does not expect us to do what he himself has not already done. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Paul writes, Forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Forgiving one another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. See, forgiveness is an expectation that is based on Jesus' example. We are not expected to do it all by ourselves with no example to follow. Christ has set the tone. See, if we don't understand this, then we have to ask ourselves, have we really received, have we really understood the forgiveness from Him? Now, don't get this wrong. We are not forgiving or working so that we can be saved, i.e. forgiven, right? Did you hear this? We're not trying to work for our salvation. No, we have been forgiven and thus saved. Now, because we are saved, we are expected to do good works and good works would include forgiveness. Forgiveness is a kingdom expectation based on the king's example. The king expects his kingdom people to forgive one another within the kingdom community as well as our enemies too. We are not to have this counter-mentality that keeps keeping track and keeping score with one another. Defy counter-mentality. Apply the countermeasure. And if you really need to count, count your blessings, count the grace, count the number of times God has overlooked and forgiven you. Either we follow His example or He will follow ours. The choice is really ours. And so number two, forgiveness is a choice, and a choice has consequences. The servant in the parable, he had a choice. He could be like the king, or he could choose not to be like the king. 
He can choose to extend grace or he can choose not to extend grace, to withhold it. He can choose to release, to forgive, or he could choose not to do that. Similarly, in the same way, we have that same choice. We can choose to be like Jesus or we can choose not to be like him. We can choose to forgive or we can choose to just keep counting and counting and counting and counting and give ourselves excuse after excuse. But the bottom line is this, whatever the choice is, is a choice to obey or to disobey. I know that sounds terrible, it sounds harsh, but there's no other way to say it. If the Lord has commanded us, expected us, given us in His Word, this instruction to disregard it means to disobey. Now, you know this saying very well. You are free to choose, but you're not free of the consequences of your choice. So if I obey, if I choose to obey and I choose to forgive, the consequence, or can I say that the outcome would be I remain free and I enjoy that freedom. It releases me to a freedom that I have in Christ. Nothing is holding me back. And if you're an occupant who wants to know and to fulfill your assignment, get this, it's going to release you to fulfill your kingdom assignments like never before. It's not going to hold you back. You're not going to have barriers and hindrances. But if you disobey, which is sin, then that debt is reinstated. That's the consequence. Jesus states it so clearly. Now, in our assignments, you'll find that you are trapped. It will trip you up because it will manifest. Unforgiveness will manifest when we get out there to do our work. It will come out with bitterness. There will be distrust, mistrust. There will be a critical spirit. We will be judgmental. We're always counting up and we're refusing to let go. And it's terrible. So forgiveness is a choice with consequences. That's why the scriptures tell us, choose wisely. Moses says, choose life, don't choose death. Unforgiveness leads to death. Forgiveness is the way of life. Break the counter mentality with God's countermeasure. Defy this counter mentality. Apply the countermeasure. And if you need to count, count the cost of choosing wrongly. I think that's better, right? And if you have made a wrong choice before, there's still hope you can still turn around. You can still repent. But please remember, repentance from unforgiveness is not simply acknowledging that you have not forgiven. Repentance from unforgiveness means you now forgive. Number three, forgiveness is by faith, not by feeling. I learn to forgive by faith because I sure don't feel like forgiving. If I wait for the time I feel like it, it will never come. It has to be by faith. Anything in my walk is by faith because when it's by faith, it's in the Spirit, it's enabled by the Spirit and by grace. And faith is believing, right? So I believe. I believe Jesus. I believe that He tells me that this is the right thing to do. I believe it. I believe God will be that ultimate judge. He will deal with the person and the situation in His time and in His way. I believe the Lord wants the very best for me. That's why He gave me this countermeasure to counter the counter mentality. I believe it. And if I believe, I obey, right? Faith, that's what it is. The expression of faith is obedience. Now, I know when I forgive, I don't, sometimes I don't feel like as if I have forgiven. It doesn't feel that way. 
but it's okay. I'm not led by feelings. I'm led by faith. I believe that as I act this out, as I say, Lord, I, I forgive this person, I may not feel very good about it, but by faith I've done it. Even if I don't see any repentance or any change in the other person or in the situation, by faith I know I have forgiven. And faith is always coupled with grace. And you will find that His grace becomes sufficient. His grace strengthens you and sustains you and even enables you to keep doing what is right. And sometimes you have to forgive again. And grace will be there to enable you. But what about feelings? I know it's still there, right? And that's why we need to know what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not a one-time event. There will be times where you forgive and did I forgive? I feel like it's not there yet. Then forgive again. Oh no, the thought comes back again. I want to count one more time. Lord, I choose. I forgive once again. It's not a one-time event. Forgiveness is not forgetting. I still remember what he said about me, did to me. Oh, I still remember it. Well, memories are there. But God in time can heal those memories long after you have forgiven many times and over again, even after the whole event is over, doesn't mean that you will forget. It's not about forgetting. But God can heal those memories and one day that can be replayed for the glory of the Lord. Forgiveness is not ceasing to feel the pain. Pain will take time to heal. And that is why it's not a one-time thing. It's not about forgetting because as you remember, the pain will come, the feelings will come again, but by faith, you release once more. Now, forgiving is not waiting for an apology or repentance. Now, if that happens, that's great. It makes it a little bit easier. But you don't wait for this to feel like forgiving. We forgive whether there's apology or repentance or not. Forgiveness is not approval or denial of sin. Now, what this means is that as you forgive, you're not saying, it's okay, you know, I condone his sin. It's okay for this person to just keep doing what he or she has been doing. We are not saying that. At the same time, we're not saying, um, you deny it. Um, it's all right. Uh, it never happened. I just don't want to think about it. That's not, that's not what forgiveness is. If there is sin, we do not approve of it, we do not deny it, and that's what the previous passage is for. We have to deal with it according to the words of Jesus, but we still forgive, but we take sin to account in the proper manner. Now, forgiveness is also not neglecting justice. If a person has sinned, Call the police, right? If it's important enough, a child is molested, there has been sexual promiscuity in a bad way, assault, abuse, call the police. If a person has stolen your money and all, call the police. Justice is there in the laws of the land and the Lord allows that, right? So do not neglect justice. Of course, you can say, I can overlook it. I release this person, but I let the law take over and do what is necessary. Now, forgiveness is also not necessarily trusting again or reconciliation for that matter. Why? Trust needs to be earned once more, right? When trust has been betrayed, it's going to take time for trust to be rebuilt. 
Now, does it mean that you're forced to reconcile? No, one party may want to do it, the other party may not want to, non-repentant, it takes two. And so this is not a likely outcome or a necessary outcome. Now, having said this, I want to be careful when it comes to marriage. If both are willing to obey the instructions of the Lord, then we must do all we can to help these be restored and to also reconcile. This point cannot be used to justify divorce. I hope these points are helpful. I know it doesn't answer every question that you have or even address the feelings that may be raging within your heart or the hurt that is there at this point in time. But I appeal to you that you will go to the Lord to seek Him for that grace, to look for the example of Him forgiving you of how you have received that, that you can have strength then to express forgiveness and extend forgiveness as an expectation of a kingdom person who is obedient to the words of our King. Let's bring this teaching to a close. I hope you see now a counter-mentality justifies unforgiveness in our hearts. And the enemy is so happy, so willing to exploit this to the max. He turns it into a weapon to hurt us individually, collectively, as the body of Christ and as a kingdom community. You know, in dealing with the issue of sexual immorality in the Corinthian church, Paul told the disciples to forgive the one who has sinned lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. See, the enemy wants to take advantage of this counter-mentality that becomes unforgiveness, divides us, breaks us up, kills us. And he lies to us, tells us it's okay, that God understands, it's all right, you know, it's painful. We've got to defy counter-mentality. And to do that, we must apply the countermeasure. I know this passage may focus on the one who has been sinned against, to keep forgiving. But let's remember that it is not meant to be applied in isolation. It must be applied in conjunction with the rest of Matthew 18, a kingdom discourse about relationships in the kingdom community. Imagine with me, if the ecclesia, the kingdom community, heeded the words of the king. Sadly, we have much to improve in these aspects. How we need his grace as we encourage one another to grow in that same grace to be able to forgive. So let's defy counter-mentality. Let's apply countermeasure. Is there someone you need to forgive? Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. We don't say that it is easy to accept this or even to obey, but we thank you for the grace that you give to us to strengthen us and the Holy Spirit who enables us. Most of all, we thank you for the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, who on the cross even was able to say, Father, forgive these, Lord, for they know not what they do. And Lord, as we have received forgiveness, allow us, Lord, to be able to extend that same forgiveness to others, because this is the right thing to do. Lord, help us to defy, to break this counter-mentality, 
and enable us, Lord, to apply this countermeasure of forgiveness so that as a community we can then be an example, a model even to the world out there of what it means to live in love for one another, to forgive one another, and to be your people. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.